everyone, and welcome to the Jessica Jones Podcast by Fantastic Geek, the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. You know how I feel about being recorded, Matt. Jessica Jones, episode 108, a.k.a. WWJD, is sponsored by Nightmare Barbie Dreamhouse. Brainwashed slaves sold separately. <laughs> wow, well done indeed. Pete, with that, we will jump straight into things. It's time for some surveillance. What did we see in the episode? We begin, Matt, at the beginning. A little brother banging on the door there who we come to realize is Philip telling his parents that uh, Jessica is farting in her room. <laughs> which was an interesting description. Uh, it's time to leave for vacation, and Jessica has 12 hours to look forward to with her family in the car, or does she? Well, Pete, I guess we could go one of two ways there. Either it is a, it is a critique of the, the, the pressures uh, placed upon teen girls and the, the unreasonable expectations as to basic body functions, or it's the stupid stuff little brothers say. Take your pick. Yeah, but either way, Jessica is fine with the idea that they might leave without her, which snaps us into the future. Welcome home, Jessica Jones. And uh, I like that we, A, pick up where we left off last time, which kind of makes sense, but also that there was this suggestion at the end of last episode that it was something horrific that we would see in there either either horrific in its uh, kind of garish clownishness or or you know truly horrific you know like bodies stacked to the ceiling or something like that um you add to it the mickey mouse telephone from last time he's oh is there going to be some sort of you know child aspect to this and i like that he has simply recreated her home as faithfully as possible so so wait a minute matt i gotta take you to task that's not horrifying the the obsession uh through which somebody would use a magnifying glass to find the particular cds that were in your room and the vintage uh posters and everything else uh i'm creeped out by the mere notion of it I like that it's a different level of creepy that they do it. I like that the show does not say, let's go for the lowest common denominator and make it look like it's... uh, Clowns. Clowns everywhere. Like it's clowns everywhere. Or it's the playhouse for an eight-year-old or something like that where it's going to be like, that's really gross. He's treating her like a little girl. Like I like that it's this deeper level of... Something that comes back to the character and not to the audience. It, they don't go, they don't say, show direct stop to the audience. We're going to shock you with something shocking. Instead, it's something that Kilgrave can be so proud about that he has so meticulously done this thing, which he thinks is so good. That is what I appreciate, that they, that they, they treat the audience in an intelligent way to give him that character moment of i did all this and i did all that and let's give david Tennant acting stuff when he's not the focus of the scene when the focus of the scene is her walking around checking all this out what's his job his job is to be three feet behind her but still acting as the character and all this whole all this story notion of he's recreated everything to be you know old school 1996 like that's a different level of creepy and it's a better level of creepy 
Well, Kilgrave has his uh, bodyguard, Hank, there, who, uh, absent a two-way street of trust, he has Jess sh- uh, searched for sharps or drugs. Uh, the sufentanil last time having given him a wicked uh, headache. And it's at this time that they locate uh, Jessica's phone on her, which was set up to record Kilgrave as use for evidence, uh, possibly even a confession. But Jess confesses to him that she's just looking to end the collateral damage. And just as a side authenticity note, this idea of a one-party consent for a uh, for for voice recording—that is a thing in states like New York and New Jersey. I know it doesn't make any sense that the person doing the the surreptitious uh, recording can be the one giving consent, but that is absolutely a a legal truth in many many states. Having been a reporter in both states, I can tell you it is absolutely a real thing. Um, and in this scene, Kilgrave reminds her that he doesn't like being recorded. Hey, that's like the beginning of this podcast. And Pete, this is an episode where they, they just let David Tennant loose here. He's so puppy dog eyed and sweet about it. You know, it's something he doesn't like. And then he adds, I promise I won't touch you until I get your genuine consent. And my emphasis there on this notion of until he just has this expectation that all it takes is time and she will give uh, genuine consent for, for touching and, you know, presumably a whole lot more. It's a definite theme to this episode we will look at in Toto. But having recreated this home so painstakingly down to the detail of the Sears and Roebuck mid-90s couch, um, having painted the walls yet still leaving the time-honored tradition of uh, measuring how tall the children are something of course that Kilgrave's parents wouldn't have done let alone marked up their walls Um, she had mentioned her happiest memories were of home and he has attempted to uh, to bring her back there but uh, you can never go home Matt you can't, but yeah, as you said, he's tried to recreate this. And again, he is so charming in this scene. And I mean, just to be clear, as we've said before, his character is a metaphor for sexual assault and the culture that can implicitly condone it or allow it or look the other way at times. But they're not they're not pulling any punches with the fact that he is a fully realized character who's just so he's the proud papa having created this thing. Yeah, and when he introduces uh, Laurent Bouchard and Alva Ramirez, who are there not as slaves, but they are being paid, they're he is at least pleased having made twice as much as he did for his last job, from which he was fired because of his drinking problem. The idea of second chances is floated in this episode for the first time. And Pete, this notion of second chances is something that I struggled with as the episode went on. I actually appreciate that that this is an episode that I've had some time to think about before we um, before we went to record this. And, and I won't kind of share the complete thought now, just because we're not we're not at those points in the story. But um, 
the notion of second chances, I'm glad that it's something that they're they're introducing early because you know as we as we kind of go through the episode here, it's something that I struggled with uh, uh, as I as I watched. I'll tell you this though, Pete, as uh, Kilgrave shows Jessica her room, uh, all of a sudden it took me back to back to my teens. Not that I had this stuff because I wasn't that cool, but I saw other kids that had the Nirvana poster, the Red Hot Chili Peppers poster. Pete, there was a kid, first name Pat, won't share his last name, who I sat behind in freshman world civilization or whatever class that was, who way too often wore the requisite Green Day Dookie Dookie, shirt. And I would look at it and say, I don't know what this is. What is going on? (laughs) There's like so much going on there. And I would just stare at it because the teacher was awful but it was like it was this weird moment of like wow i'm old because this is her childhood or this is these are her teenage years and as you mentioned pete all of that is there because kilgrave used a magnifying glass on pictures to identify cds and uh i believe matt also had binoculars in his uh uh room when he was a teen I did actually. My, me and my pal George McFly, we used to go out and we'd go up in the trees and see what we could see. And sometimes, yowza! This one time, he almost got hit by a car. Though it was really, really weird. Some some kid saved him though. But back to this, Pete. Ring, ring on the phone, and I love that. Here we are, eight episodes in, and the show has enough uh, reliance in itself to make an in-universe joke. We know, you know, we could see. I think on the caller ID, or maybe it has. We haven't seen the caller ID yet, but but uh, Kilgrave holding the phone says it's Patsy. Love that it's that that reference to her old show back as a kid. Yeah, and what this serves to do is to let um, Jessica tell Trish where she is, that she's okay, Um, catches up from last time, that she's not in jail, Kilgrave had shown up at the precinct, that she's left the city, and that she is in control of her own faculties because she refers to Kilgrave as a psychotic waste that he would never allow her to say, much to his chagrin. But she, Trish, reports that everyone is disappearing, and by everyone, we mean Will Simpson. Probably means a little special something is disappearing in the bedroom, too. But I digress. When it is mentioned in Jessica's bedroom that Simpson is is gone, because uh, Trish is on speakerphone, right? Yes. That That's awful handy to aid the narrative. Uh, to be fair, not that I'm being critical, because, of course, Kilgrave would want it to be on speakerphone. But, you know, again, you know, oh, Simpson is gone, too. I guess she doesn't call him Will, even though he's, you know. <laughs> um, but Tennant's shruggy looked of, wasn't me. Right. Again, it's so wonderful. And it's like, damn you, David Tennant, for being so wonderful at this, because... There is no question as to the awfulness of your character. Even when we get some background here, it's like, okay, I get why, as a 10-year-old, you were a crappy 10-year-old. But, you know, I mean, this, again, this is a character who's a metaphor for sexual assault. There is no real wiggle room that he gets. But somehow David Tennant, whose job is to make this a fully formed character, he has us like him, even though he's 100% despicable and awful. And that Simpson has put in a leave of absence implies a a greater idea here um, as to his whereabouts. Something we'll get to in just a little bit. But uh, 
you know, Kilgrave regards once uh, Trish is off the phone that it's rough being her friend that uh, Laurent and uh, what's her name are cooking up a storm down there. And, uh, you know, when you want, you can join us. And Matt, I don't know whether it's just timing, but how about new beginnings here? Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and now Jessica Jones. <laughs> it it uh, it's it's well i mean is it on purpose i doubt it in part because we're watching this episode kind of arbitrarily but it's it it's interesting to be at this point where we are not quite rebooting things but it's this kind of you know as you say it's a new beginning a new chapter uh, on on both shows um and that's part of what's going on in this episode where i kind of I I I know she is a good person, but I struggle with her long term plan for all of this, and I, I buy it. Don't get me wrong, but I kind of struggle with it, even down to the conclusion of this scene where he says he has a present for her, and she kicks him out of her bedroom, wedges the chair in it. It's this very get out dad feeling, which is creepy, and and serves to kind of underpower her. Um, and I just kept asking myself, why is she allowing this? And I guess I have to return to this idea of she wants to put the she wants to create a final end in this. And it's funny, Pete. Last night I was listening to the podcast or episode one oh five or something like that, which I hadn't listened to before. And I'm saying Jessica's ultimately a good person, a good person. She's a good person. And I'm like, oh, Thanks, Jessica Jones podcast by Fantastic Geek. You're helping me understand why she isn't just snapping his neck because she doesn't need a Batman oath of I shall not kill. She will not kill. That's her that's her that's her take with this. Well, she's killed enough and she doesn't want to further devolve down that path that Kilgrave has to the point where he's making moral equivocations as to whether he's killing or not. That's true. And I mean, yes, she has killed. I would also say asterisk. She has also not killed in that it was in that it was um, by Kilgrave's command, although that's something to be really deliciously discussed later on in the episode as well. Something that something that had not occurred to me as to to how complicit she is in that death. But she uh, she opens the present. It's a purple dress that she promptly rips to shreds. I had to just wonder for a split second I had to feel for the the the, the costume uh, person <laughs> whose job it was to make a beautiful dress that can be picked up, that can be put in a box, that can be blah 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 blah. But also, like, don't forget, you have to use the special thread here, here, and here, so it can be ripped in one take. Oh, and do three of those just in case we need to do multiple takes. So, ah, what one does for their art. And as Kilgrave's waiting downstairs for her to show up and the whole idea here of it being her choice and he laments what it must be like for these people um, waiting for what you want to finally happen. I like that clearly because she takes a nap and we have a change of, uh, you know, from the light of day to now it's evening. Clearly hours have gone by. Now it's one thing for uh, Laurent and is it Alva Pete? I, I am un, I, I am under Kilgrave's spell. I cannot <laughs> remember her name. I was watching the episode saying, "What is it? What is it?" And I'd hear it, and then I wouldn't write it down. And then the next thing would come along, it'd be like Ava, Eva. So Alva, 
It's one yeah. thing for the two of them to stand there, either because they are 100% committed to doing their very best in this awesome job, you know, or as we'll learn, they're, they're, they're under Kilgrave's uh, sway. For him to keep sitting there, though, that's the that's the troubling thing. He's just going to sit casually. Oh, you're ready for dinner? Great. I, I mean that that effortlessly speaks to speaks to just what a nutball he is. With a uh, bag of steroids, Hank lurking around, which uh, Kilgrave is able to send out of the room, so it can uh, facilitate a more intimate setting. Um, Jessica decides she's not going to have his favorite, uh, pasta, a Mitriana. She is instead going to have a liquid dinner. And it's a great extended steady cam shot as she sits down, she downs a wine, she drinks another, the camera, you know, at this point we've now turned around from moving toward her to moving away from her to, to Kilgrave's end of it. Just out of nowhere, super nice, um, Super nice camera move there. I'm all but sure that we're in a real, you know, a real house in a real place in New York, you know, that it's not on, not a set. So all the more impressive because it's not, you know, built extra wide for cameras and lights and all that stuff. At least that's my supposition. But um, when the camera does get to kill Grave, he notes here, finally, as as mentioned before, that uh, that she was the one who chose to kill Reva Connors. She was told to take care of her, not kill her. Which, let's just pause the narrative for a moment, Pete. That's a really interesting distinction there because we've seen him say it, uh, and I think we've seen him say it multiple times. We've seen that scene. Was Jessica acting on her own supposition when she killed Reva Connors? I think that's solved best in-universe later in the episode when he talks about how painstakingly he must choose his words. Imagine he once told a man to go screw himself. So, you know, we're not going to completely eliminate her. She is the one who carries out the action. We know that when he's controlling their minds – that there's some part of them that fights but never strong enough to overcome it. But he gave the direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's an excellent point, and, and we can certainly discuss kind of the, 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 the difficulties of Kilgrave when we get to that scene. But And I um, think it's no surprise that just as she smashes the bottle here um, – Alva and Laurent come in and put straight razors to their necks, the safeguard being in place. And of course he has a safeguard, right? And, you know, uh, not to continually praise uh, the, the the wonderful casting of, you know, bit actors from the New York area. But, you know, here we are again where they both have their little moments where it's not necessarily a close-up and it's not, you know, the show is yours, but they just look terrified that they're doing this. Um, there was I, a strange comedy in the way they are bid around in this episode. It is, yeah. And, and I appreciate that the show does not give us a scene where, you know, the... Kilgrave hypnotism scene for Alva and Laurent. It's it's just this slow unfolding of shame on we the audience for believing what we were first given from Laurent. 
I make twice as much here than I did at my old job. Of course we should be doubt. How did we fall for that? How did we fall for that for a split second? Because we want to see the good in this guy. And this whole episode is about, is there good in him? When she heads back upstairs after this whole uh, attempt at dinner, um, she notices that her brother Philip's bedroom is cracked open and Simpson pulls her in there. Yeah, and I thought it was a, I, I don't know, Simpson sneaking in despite there being pro-security, but he's also kind of like a professional, quote-unquote, security guy, given his spec ops background. I mean, it, it all makes sense. It, it Simpson in this episode is more a function of the story than anything else. And that's not a huge criticism, but it's a bit of, it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a criticism in that I think he's just there to connect A and B. It's not some some giant leap, but here we have that. And there's the tussle and, you know, so on and so forth. And his reveal that there's a bomb in the basement. Um, the rather the rather kind of fleeting thing. I could have it go off when they they go take the garbage out. Yes, because Alva and Laurent both will take the garbage right. out at the same time. <laughs> like, it, this clearly is... <clears throat> This is what we tell civilians when there must be collateral deaths, which that's a thing and that's an unfortunate reality, but that's a reality, at least in, in his worldview. Uh, and he's happy to tell her that. She, of course, buys none of it. And a quick tussle later, she's telling him to get out. The overarching narrative is needing to get the proof to get Hope out of jail. And as much as blowing Kilgrave up would eliminate him, it doesn't solve that problem which again is at the heart of this episode being a good person despite having bad things happen in your life and you know it's it's i'm glad you remind me and the audience of that because again maybe i was in my own head too much of you know act i trust you jessica jones snap his neck end this now i know of course this you know episode 108 is not the time to do that don't get me wrong but i was just you know, treating her as a real person in my in my in my head, um, but you're right, Pete. That that might end the Kilgrave threat. You still have hope in jail. Period. And and she has responsibility. Jessica does to try and resolve that in Hope's favor, and to to not have Hope be punished for something that Hope didn't really do. Uh, so so thank you, Pete, for that reminder there. That that Hope is a real person. To Jessica and hope hope is dealing with those real consequences and no sooner does she take this information from Simpson and tell Kilgrave there is this bomb in the basement and Hank finds it and people lose their jobs Matt they do I can't say I feel that bad for them I mean just because they're working for a bad guy their job is security and they clearly did a bad job um now granted it's because former spec ops guy i won't say agent spec op spec ops officer will simpson um did place it there but it's also like not for nothing it's like hanging from the you know like hanging off the the cold water line or whatever it's it wasn't a very well hidden job but Chekhov's bomb Chekhov's bomb indeed you know what pete yes and I did not for one second say, oh, this is a ticking time bomb that will come back by the end of the episode. It was just like, oh, it's dispensed with. It's um, a remote detonator foam bomb. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I was not... It, it is not that I was watching this episode without complete focus. I was just thoroughly engrossed in this moral narrative that Jessica is going through and my own discussion in what I think she should be doing. But again, Pete, it's not what I think she should be doing. The question is, WWJD. Yeah, and when we come back to this discussion uh, with Kilgrave and Jessica, you know, he maintains he's never killed tomato, tomato, um, that his conscience is just more selective. I love, by the way, that he says tomato, tomato, because Pete, tomato, tomato means two ways to do the same thing, right? Right. <laughs> so him say, I, I, I hope it was intentional writing to have him say, you say I take a life. I say I do not take lives. Tomato, tomato. Because tomato, tomato is the way to say there's actually no difference between us. So for him to say tomato, tomato, it's him saying, you say I kill. I kind of kill. I kill. You know, it's two different ways to kill. You know, like it's it, it, it undercuts his argument. And I hope that that was on purpose. Her phone having been confiscated by Kilgrave, she had removed Simpsons from him upstairs and she had just recorded part of this and is able to text Hogarth at this time. She is a much happier person with an iPhone. Sorry, Pete. What? Back to you. (laughs) Um, So then we head to the office of Hogarth, Benowith, and Chow, where we're deep in negotiations with uh, Wendy. Still, the number is 70% of the holdings, which is termed by Hogarth's partner as ridiculous. And the, the portrayal here of Wendy, I think, is really so spot on. She's absolutely captivating as she says that she she has nothing. She had nothing before Jerry. She built a life around Jerry. Um, why did she, why did Wendy love her? Because Jerry was kind to her when Jerry was so 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 rough to everyone else. A bastard, Matt. Indeed. And I'm not saying these are choices that 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 one is admirable to have made. I mean, you know, we all have. We all have the relationships that we have, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that saying I'm making a conscious decision to make you my everything in that I have nothing. My life is nothing without you. And because you're nice to me, I therefore can can hitch my my wagon to your horses. Um, so I'm not saying that Wendy is necessarily well, w- Wendy clearly should not. You know, like Jerry, Jerry, you know, Jerry was not great wife material, but It's so heartfelt from Wendy's point of view. And we know that she's a capable professional and so on and so forth. Wendy is. And and, and I felt felt bad for her. There's a lot that goes on in the scene that softens uh, Hogarth when Wendy said that she was holding out hope until what happened in the subway. And then Hogarth says she's sorry. And I think we believe her here. Um, But, you know, it's a lot of water under the bridge. And... uh, now uh, Wendy's going after her livelihood and she says that she's going to have to say sorry in cash. And it's at this point that Pam comes in and calls uh, Jerry Miss Hogarth and uh, Wendy asks if that's why she gets to be the special one now. But she's got a text from Jess. 
Oh, I'm sorry, Pete. I was just getting a text from somebody saying uh, it's vaguely story baloney that Pam would be anywhere near that meeting room. Now, I get it. You want to have the, the moment of Wendy with her with her vitriol towards the new woman. And, of course, Pam is the office number two to Jerry. So, of course, she's the one holding Pam's personal uh, – Pam is the one holding Jerry's personal phone to have gotten the text, so on and so forth. That's all fine. And we don't want to waste a ton of time with Pam, you know, interior, Jerry's office, Pam getting text, close up, Pam's eyes going wide, yelling at person we've never seen before, go tell Miss Hogarth, blah, blah, blah. That would all be a waste of story time. So thank you, show, for not wasting my time. But seriously – Pam is going to come into the divorce proceedings as the the new woman, as the woman that's broken up this marriage. Got a wag of the finger there, show. Wag of the finger. Having communicated that uh, now Hogarth is in the circle and knows that Jessica is with Kilgrave, we find Trish, who is stalking Simpson. Yeah, and... I like that in an episode where they might not have given much to Trish, I like that they're they're still going to find a way for her to be um, kind of standing up for herself um, to the point that we have a stammering hiding Simpson. You know, he's clearly been caught in a few lies here. Uh, there's a lot of ums and errs and that sort of thing. He's gonna he's gonna catch up with his boys. Don't worry. Don't worry, homies. I'll 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 catch with you. You just you just keep on walking. I gotta talk to this girl on the way to class. Um, he does he doesn't tell he does tell her though that she can't always help. Which what a thing to say to somebody. You can't always help these situations. His There's a distinction that's drawn to. He talks about us and them. The them being the Jessica Jones and Kilgraves of this universe. I'm sure Pete, that if, if they just had somebody to build a wall, it would all be okay. But his conclusion is that they both need to get out of, out of their way, the, the them, you know, get, get out of the, the way of, of these more powerful people. And here Simpson is just a tad too weaselly for my tastes. I think he has more, more backbone than this now he might be trying to kind of soft pedal it because he's he's got a soft spot for her but again a little a little too weaselly there for me we catch up with jessica and she sees the uh handle on her door turn and then mom comes in and we know this is not in the present time her father and philip they're telling her they have to go he had uh she has to go with them um and that they would all be alive if it were not for her. Suddenly the brother is covered in blood. Uh, the mother is now agreeing with uh, Philip and uh, that she has to make it right before she snaps out of it. And for the first time in this episode, Matt, the TV is on and we're hearing uh, background chatter about uh, a father holding his wife and two children at gunpoint. Chekhov's gunpoint. But just to go back earlier in the scene for a moment, not only do we cut to uh, first Philip uh, 
be having been bloodied, but really, really, really effective job. They've hid some basic tubey rig. That's an official film and TV term, by the way. When you use tubes, it's tubey. But they've put some tubes under his hat so that on camera he can be actively bleeding more and more. And something that they do with slightly lesser effect for mom and dad. But just this stark cut of, oh my goodness, he's bloody, he's bleeding, is really, really... I mean, it's really, really, really well done. Obviously, I don't want to say, like, it's nice in terms of, hooray, dead, dying child. But, I mean, in terms of what the story they're trying to tell, really, really well done. And, again, it's it's a, it's a squeezy end on a tube and some tubes under his hat and it just it just works it's like so much in this show pete that is so low tech that it that that it it's almost more effective than what if we did you know blue computer lasers and an underscore she's lost this family there's another family right now same uh number of people fighting for uh survival there are families outside in the neighborhood we see women pushing baby carriages and random dude watering lawn indeed all who can't see the lady watching them with binoculars but she comes down to breakfast in the the backyard patio sweet table by the way um and i love how she's roughly eating her breakfast and the whipped cream bump bump on the pancake on it and with your fingers taking some of the watermelon um the whole time Again, David Tennant, great acting here. He's not charming, though. He just looks on in stony, hard silence. I even wondered, Pete, by the look on his face and kind of the way his eyes, the the skin around his eyes looked, I wondered if this was like, oh, man, after all these night shoots... All right, Mr. Tennant, we're gonna do a we're gonna do a seven a.m. call at the house there. So he's gotta 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 wake up at like you know five thirty, get over to hair and makeup. Like he just looked like ticked off to be up that early and for things not to be going well. I so, didn't get that it was an, a morning shoot. The light looked a little later than that, but no sooner does Elizabeth DeLuca, nosy neighbor, come over, and I love the shift suddenly. Uh, it's Kilgrave who is the ingratiating one and Jessica who is trying to shoo her away. Oftentimes, Pete, I hate this kind of forced tropey stuff. Um, but the next door neighbor who's way too nosy, that, that is not that forced. That is not that impossible. But you're right. He goes from 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 a grumpy Gus to so happy to hear more about little Jesse you know, come tell the stories. First, uh, she talks about uh, how how loud uh, Jessica was as a little baby, how she didn't sleep for, for I think it was months, certainly weeks. Um, we'll maybe stick a little mental pin in that. I know that we've been told that it was uh, it was an accident that caused her uh, her powers. Um, wondering if maybe she had super lungs even back then. But then, Pete, we get into Mrs. DeLuca touching on some some tender points here talks of mom and dad fighting of philip being a juvenile delinquent even the day before the accident just in case if you didn't know she knew everybody died horrifically um and pete mrs deluca sensed there would be trouble honest she did no she didn't (laughs) and this is where you go oh my goodness this show is making me root for Kilgrave, if only in this scene, because she's pressed by Kilgrave. She didn't really sense it. 
Uh, and and we, of course, are horrified with that revelation. I mean, it, her behavior is bad enough, but we've all been around that person. We've all been around Mrs. DeLuca and maybe not over like now is not a good time to talk about the death of my parents and brother. But we've all been around the real version of her. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that she even says if somebody were to say that to me, I would slap them. But, you know, like you said before, we we see the benefit in Kilgrave's powers here. And and this is something that Jess even says was just the slightest bit satisfying uh, to be around. And when she gives the little shake of the head no to this notion of, you know, this unspoken notion of should Kilgrave have Mrs. DeLuca slap herself, you know, as, as it's she says slap. Kilgrave looks over and then we have the, you know, if we kind of pause for a moment in time uh, with here, Jessica can give a yes or a no. I think that we're equally split, like not for nothing. One hard slap to this woman's face by herself. I'm not saying, you know, that a man or a superpowered woman should slap her in the face, but a little extra, uh, you know. So Jessica, again, in an episode where I was dealing with, why don't you just take matters into your own hands? No, she is making... She's making the, the the moral decision of let it go. Let somebody, you know, l- let Mrs. DeLuca handle her own business. She doesn't need to be punished by us. And it's this episode that precipitates what takes place in the dining room and, and the family room there with the, the true nature of Kilgrave's abuse that, um, she had uh, he had tried to touch her hand here for the second time in the episode. He's told uh, you can't touch me, and he brings up that they used to do more than touch hands. And this is where we get to the center of it all. And here we are, you know, give or take within you know twenty thirty minutes of the absolute center of the season. Um, and, and here she is. She calls his actions literal and figurative rape. And I like that the show has the narrative guts to go beyond the, the metaphor and go beyond the implied and just to, to to talk about what we've been talking about this whole time and, and get it out there um, and, and really make it an issue of uh, where, where the show itself is discussing it. Um, but as you say, Pete. Kilgrave quickly turns it back onto him. Surprise, surprise. Jessica wants to have this moment to confront her abuser and and to 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 name the crime for what it is. No, it's back to Kilgrave. Uh, his life was difficult because his parents were awful. No, no, really awful. And do you want to see what they put him through? He takes out the yellow thumb drive and uh, nice little moment there. We have a quick flashback to the thumb drive being dug out by Jessica with Reva in tow, just in case you forgot that scene. And with that, Pete, what's on the disc? 1985, October 31st, 1985, to be exact. While most kids are trick-or-treating, instead of the trick is on little Kevin Kilgrave, whose parents have him, uh, this little bald boy with a scar on the side of his head and fresh stitches um, all hooked up to various machines and they are walking him through to uh, see if his fine motor skills have returned. And we discover here that it was his parents who were scientists 
they were bent, as he uses the word, on turning him into a freak between neurological exams, fluoroscopy, brain biopsies, and his personal favorite, cerebrospinal fluid extraction. It is to the credit of the show that despite the fact that Kilgrave is so different from Kingpin in Daredevil and, and we're clearly able to be in, in both shows more mature, more vicious with the bad guys, we're able to be ha- have kind of the longer sustained darkness to a story. Um, so despite the need to be different from the previous Marvel Netflix show, we're still going to give Kilgrave his origin story. We're still going to give Kilgrave something that we can be a little sympathetic to. Let's hope some of the fans of agents of shield who are clearly bananas, uh, about Ward in that show. Uh, let's hope that they're not equally now completely sympathetic and whitewashing Kilgrave for all, for all his sins. I somehow suspect not. Um, but what a wonderful scene here that we get to see the turning of the tide, where here they are, they're in the midst of doing this this uh, this uh, drawing of his spinal fluid, and and we see that moment where now all of a sudden, for whatever weird implied mixture of of chemicals and processes and whatever, and I like that they don't it, they don't spell it out as you know this particular mixture, and when it's this amount of lightning, it's just it's just a switch that gets flipped, and there he is now with the power that we've come to know. To know. And, you know, talking about how when your father, when Jessica's father was playing on the lawn with him, he was preparing for his fourth elective surgery, and to see this shift in the dynamic later to be told that his parents ran away, that they left promising careers, that this power, like yours, Jessica, was forced on him. And it's here that the TV hostage situation comes back into the story again. No huge surprise there since it's been prominent in one previous scene, but... um... Bef- right before they go to to uh, address this hostage situation, um, there is this kind of underlining from Jessica that, or pardon me, from him rather, that that what is it that he wants? He wants the evidence that his powers exist to have been erased. He he wants to be a non a non entity in this world, which I think within this larger context of the the characters that we don't see in Jessica Jones with all the the Avengers stuff and with all the Sokovia, this and that, the other. And my goodness, Pete, as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as that world, as that America starts to become more and more suspicious of those who are different to a point that this spring in the Marvel Universe, we now start to have to have international legislation about powered people and so on and so forth. For the briefest moment, if you put Kilgrave in in the context of this larger world, of course he wants things kept quiet. He has a power that he can keep quiet um, by nature of the power. You know, he can have peop- he can have the cop erase uh, the, the the footage of his presence in the fifteenth precinct. Um, so of course he wants to keep things quiet. I mean, we, we can we can be sympathetic with that if nothing else. I think he's worried like all of these people with powers of, of being taken advantage of, despite the fact that his power kind of renders that impossible. But to tell everybody in 
the scene with uh, Chuck, the shotgun wielding out of control dad from the the wife and the children to Chuck not to tell anybody after having done it to the cops, including a, a nice nod to uh, Star Wars there. You know, we can go about our business, move along, move along. Though he's like Obi-Wan Kenobi, only cooler, there's a real concern that they might be taken advantage of. I agree with all of that, but I think Kilgrave knows that if his reputation was bigger than than the scope of his power, which is presumably within the sound of his the natural sound of his voice, you know, which is to say not over the phone, but yeah, I know in the comments or the radio, as we've seen earlier. Right, right. Um, I know that uh, in the comics, it's a pheromone. There's a pheromone aspect to it. I don't know if we want to hang our hats on that uh, greatly for this show. But bottom line, there needs to be this proximity, right? The minute it spills out of his proximity, you know, all you need is one person who hasn't been told to forget it, who's the right person, who's the chief of police, and then you're setting up snipers with earplugs or snipers three blocks away and just, as soon as he comes into the crosshairs, take the shot, the end. And I think Kilgrave is aware that you know, as long as this is a fire that nobody knows is burning, then nobody knows to fight it. But the minute it's out of control, then it's all hands on deck and then he's a goner. Whether it's a goner getting his head blown off, whether it's in perpetual, uh, um, you know, kept kept under while they do more brain biopsies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do want to mention, by the way, Pete, that uh, while they're off here at uh, at Chuck's house and there's the, the Chuck the saving of Chuck and uh, Chuck's family. Uh, the clock is ticking because if they don't get back to the house, uh, uh, Alva and Laurent are going to take each other's uh, skin off their faces. Yeah, not as effective, I should say, as what happens a little bit later, only because of the way that it's played with the not blinking <laughs> right, right. while Jess is gone or till she returns. But it's here... It's in this scene that Kilgrave begins to see the other side. Um, you know, he wants to kill Chuck. Jessica tells him, of course, that's not for you to decide, that uh, there's got to be justice here. And, and this is the thesis of the episode. This is what would Jesse do, um, that this guy's a waste, that, that we can just get rid of him. It's wasted effort to even do what I did. And she explains, he just saved four lives. And now he wants cake. And he, as they get back to the house, he is so proud of himself for having saved uh, saved the woman and the kids. And there's this there's this interesting discussion here now that he wants to save more lives. How many lives does it take to get back to zero to do, you know, he's, what are the moral maths? Of course, there's multiple maths because he's <laughs> British. Um, and, you know, she, of course, reminds him that that this is not, un, you know, un, saving people is not unkilling the, the people in the past. Right. right. Um, and they're not going to be, thank God, a dynamic duo. Indeed. Oh, that would be awful. Um, that, <laughs> that must have gotten a chuckle in the writer's room, certainly. Um, but it's at this point that she realizes that he can't be a hero without her. And that's kind of where, again, with me being slightly out of sync with her motivations for much of the episode, 
it's, you know, she thought it would be a little bit to show him the great power that he has with him. Pete, it's almost like with great power, you have great responsibilities, but she can't sum that up in one sentence. And she realizes this is going to be a long-term project. So time to take a walk. In a flashback, we get what happened on the car trip with uh, the Jones family. Um, Conspicuously, Matt, a yellow Game Boy, um, not unlike the yellow flash drive, is uh, something very big in play here. And uh, who can't play is Philip. They fight over it, just throws it, breaks it, and it's distraction and a Game Boy that kills this family and may or may not have led to Jess's powers. Ooh, I like how you said that at the end there because I read the severity in which it sounded like the Game Boy was smashed. So I know that's a couple of bits of implication there, reading into off-screen action as informed by sound effects, then making an inference. But I had wondered, Pete, if she already had the super strength there. Now, I will grant you, your standard moody teen, unpowered Jess, you know, she clearly is, you know, going through the angst, and there's there somebody has pushed the inside-out puberty button, and life is really tough and all that. So I'm sympathetic to that. And I mean, a, norm, a normal kid could break a Game Boy in such a fashion, but I had wondered if it was a little hint to that the powers were already there. Her brother also refers to her as a spaz, so there's that at play. Take it forever where you will. With that, Pete, we end up in Trisha's apartment. That's where, I guess, the walk has taken her back to Manhattan. Um, And here, Jessica admits to Trish that she's been living with Kilgrave. Uh, Trish pours her a drink of the booze. Jess thought Trish didn't keep. Uh, And Pete, there's a little bit of kind of some 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 wacky wording here as Trish as the hypothetical Jessica seems to be slightly abridged too far at least in terms of the the narration or the narrative right she says would you be willing to give up life as Trish Walker and I get it that she's asking her friend what would she do but you given Trish Walker's life there's a different level of sacrifice that would be committed there she's we know she's got the the fame and the job and the money and the looks and everything like that so it it just comes across as confusing what's not confusing though is jessica's central thought what would you do if you could teach kilgrave to work for good and it's her moral conundrum and it's her way of trying to make things right as a power that she points out could potentially change the world. It's as seductive a thought as Kilgrave thinking about turning to the good side and using his powers. But the idea that somebody would need to be with him to direct him in the right way, you know, Jess calls, you know, not story baloney, but, you know, she calls that notion out earlier that, oh, because your parents weren't around, you don't know right from wrong. That's not the case. Pete, speaking of right from wrong, we move on to uh, to Jerry, who I think let's not forget as powerful and presumably effective a lawyer she is. Um, and even if we sit and say, well, you know, part of the lawyer's job is to defend the guilty or to defend the powerful. You know, the, these are the rights that 
that powerful and guilty people have, same as as the meek among us. She also did a bad thing too. She she almost certainly was involved in jury tampering early on in her career. And uh, Pete, I think Wendy doesn't want her to forget that. Yes, Wendy Ross Hogarth. The email is from um, with the subject line: "Coming attractions." Coming soon to a computer near you. Proof of jury tampering by managing partner or settle. Um, this is a great way. This this story service that we give to Jerry and Wendy and the divorce proceedings. It's a nice way to keep this story going. Um, it's it's rare on television, at least in my viewing experience, to to see uh, a same sex divorce. So. It's it's nice that the story is just kind of uh, treating this as a reality and, and moving with it and whatnot. But what's nice is what might seem to be a tangent now is going to link directly back into the main story because Jerry has had enough. She texts Jessica to stop uh, – or pardon me, to stop what you're doing and get dirt on Wendy. And it is, of course, Kilgrave as the kind of weird, creepy dad who's taken away the daughter's phone for a week for being bad. He's the one who's receiving the text and uh, is going to start to respond. No sooner has Jess returned that now um, Laurent and Alva can finally blink these poor people. And uh, they're treated to a meal of dosed Chinese food. <laughs> In what I thought was a really, like, I did not see that coming at all. I thought it was really, really um, effective how they, how, we as the audience in kind of classic, you know, gumshoe fashion, we don't know exactly what's going on, but um, it's, you know, oh, come on, have them eat with us. We're all supposed to be one big happy family. Jessica doesn't say that, but she's playing it up. She even eats his food to show it's not poisoned, then spills food on herself, gets up. And uh, with Alvin Laurent passing out, because whether it's uh, whether it's uh, the, the stuff Kilgrave has been drugged with in the past or whatever – um, they're now out for the count, which also means they can't follow fail-safe directions. That's when Jessica comes in. Again, shocking moment, hypos him. It's like it's like a couple episodes ago where here we are, presumably so close to a resolution, and the show is letting us get there at least temporarily. And Pete, we get the line, that's what Jessica would do. Right, and she looks up as she's carrying him, um, it's dark out, uh, the, the tree is there and, uh, she seems to be upset about what the option is. Uh, Hank tries to stop her, um, you know, that he can legally shoot her, uh, because she's attempting to make off with the client and then Simpson and his boys come in and prevent that. But no sooner does Jessica fly or does she fly? That suddenly uh, Will and his boys run into uh, Mrs. DeLuca there that Kilgrave had uh, asked me to give you what's in this bag. Boom. Fantastic ending there. I think the minute she shows up, that's when you say, oh, no, oh, no. It's not going to work out. And then the the limbs that, that remain and the final shot there of Will with glass protruding from his gut that uh, obviously this will need to be followed up upon.
What suspects draw our focus in this episode? Pete, let's start with Kilgrave. I think really interesting. Obviously, it's the most we've gotten of Tennant as the character in one episode. But that they flip the uh, paradigm, that the idea first of what he suffered at the hands of his parents and two, that his gift could be utilized for good as, you know, is the potential with all of these powered people to either use it or abuse it is a really interesting aspect. And he saved people with this. So he's at least capable of good. But as we know, the character, he is bad, bad, bad. It would have been so easy to just say, he's the shark from Jaws. He will just be bad. We're not going to give layers and layers and layers of sympathy as we did with Kingpin. Let's make this different. Uh, the fact that they still are going to give him a backstory and a power origin story and some sympathy just adds to the shading of this character who can still remain bad, bad, bad. How about Hank, Matt? Again, I, I give Hank a lot of latitude. Let's assume that Hank is in no way brainwashed. Well, let's start with that. If so, he is just doing the job for a client. I'm going to assume that everything that we see Hank do is legally uh, allowed. I don't know, as a matter of fact, that, that attacking a client lets you use deadly force. I suspect it's probably not too far from the truth. I mean, if you're able to defend yourself and you hire someone to defend you, uh, you know, to me, that kind of quickly, you know, that becomes believable if it's even if it's not, you know, New York City, New York State law. Um, and and again, I mean, Hank's just kind of a guy. He's just a guy doing his job, Pete. His job just happens to be for a bad, bad man. We have uh, the gun toting father, Chuck, who uh, in a in a storyline that really exists to to flip around our context with um Kilgrave is an interesting choice. It's it's interesting that they use there, there, there somehow is something sympathetic about Chuck, even though we only see him doing this most awful thing. Um somehow there still is that little bit of sympathy there. And I think, you know, we we walk away saying, hopefully this experience with Kilgrave will have transformed Chuck to be a better guy to get the help he needs. I mean, he's certainly going to prison for at least a a, a significant stretch but you kind of hope it's been a positive thing for chuck certainly will be positive for the rest of the family who doesn't need to deal with chuck anymore and then we have uh mrs deluca the the awful exchange early on that though we're getting insight into jess's past about her high power tonsils and um, what seems to have been Jess's lionization of her family, that she denies her parents fought. She denies that her brother was a juvenile delinquent and sticks up for him. Then the ultimate, uh, you know, use of the character in this episode. I mean, I think you have to start at her end and, and give her sympathy that she is the nosy blabby neighbor that the, the charming, uh, you know, Jesse's charming husband, boyfriend, you know, whoever this is, is is lavishing attention upon her, uh, added to the fact that, you know, her being Mrs. DeLuca, added to the fact that apparently she has a bit of a of a predisposition for doing things to get attention. 
you know, I mean, shame on her, but that certainly doesn't warrant being a brainwashed suicide bomber, which you know, itself has these overtones of, of unfortunate familiarity. Um, but the fact that she's taken to that point, I guess, uh, if there is going to be some kind of larger larger lesson here, it's that uh, it's easy to, to get wrapped up in these uh, in these doctrines, Pete. Cryptology, where we uncover hidden messages and larger themes. Pete, where should we start? Killgrave. Unredeemable? Uh, see, that's tough. I think that they're floating that. I'll, I'll, come from, I'll come from a point of view that I normally like to not argue from, which is what are the fake constructed writer's room requirements of the episode? Here we are in the middle of the season, and it's give some sympathy, give some background before we start to head into the final stretch and the final conclusion. So now's a good time to show redeemable question mark. That said, I mean, the episode calls his, his, I don't want to say his worst crime because the, his role in the taking of lives is worse than anything else. But the fact that he is so clearly called a rapist brings the whole season thus far into focus and I don't think you undo that. There's no there, there's no situation where you say it is okay to steal because I can um, to feed my family. And sometimes you must kill for the greater good. There's kind of not the analogy to that. Not even sometimes not. Maybe it should be a bit more direct. There's no version of that where rape is in any way excusable. So I don't know how you come back from that. I think Trisha's experience only underscores that he is unredeemable and and why she feels so unredeemable that she's been involved with these three deaths now and she feels the guilt for that whereas he has no guilt whatsoever. It it certainly is an it's an interesting way to both give him sympathy and to also say this is somebody who has been able to operate for so long without a moral compass to do whatever he wants. And we all have moments where we want to do whatever we want, you know, that extra slice of cake or that extra, you know, run through the yellow light, whatever it might be. We do things that we know we shouldn't. But he has no reason to stop him because if he gets pulled over by the cop, he just says, you know, move along, move along, whatever it might be. So the fact that we see some really awful background to him doesn't do away with the fact that he still has chosen to do these awful things. What do you make of Jess's seeming inability to find any fault in her parents and her little brother? I can't imagine what it's like to lose family like that at that age, let alone, I mean, I have, that's not a a loss I, I have had to experience thus far in my life, but to have to, to lose your entire immediate family at that age, presumably entire family period. My goodness, she was adopted by strangers, right? Um, I think that just goes with the territory. I don't think that 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 doesn't get one bit of judgment on my end. Um, I don't even know if as a reflective adult in in her 30s, we're assuming, right? She's in her early 30s. I don't even think you reach a point where you're going to say, let me be honest with the fact that my brother was a juvenile delinquent. You just... You just wouldn't because you know that discussion with yourself isn't going to 
It's not going to give you any peace. It's not going to give you any resolution. So you just continue with the mental picture you had, whether that's truthful or not. Where is Jess headed with Kilgrave? Oh, I think uh, back to that uh, abandoned industrial complex with ultra soundproofed <laughs> walls that we've seen soundproofed from the outside in, from the inside out. And we know that they're closed all the time and the roads might be empty on Sundays, but oh, no one goes here anymore. Um, that's even without knowing the name of the next episode or having seen the cover art for it on Netflix. Um, that's just that's too good a set with too good a uh, uh, bits of information about the degree of its soundproofing to to not come back to that's not that's not even spoilery that's just called writing 101 pete let's check our mail drop and the old mail bag is looking a little empty this week so let's let's talk about what's ahead for fantastic geek let's talk about keeping the conversation going i know pete uh for the for the shocking Agents of Shield mid season finale, there's been a lot of discussion going on over at Facebook. So let's let's get some more some more discussion going on there about this with uh, Jessica remainder. Jones. Oh, Jessica Jones, yeah. In a, in such a uh, you know heavy plot like this one, I'm I'm just surprised it it can't be this cut and dry. So you know if you have strong feelings about this show, that is certainly a place you can air them. We're always going to encourage iTunes reviews as well, and you help others find us in addition to helping us and getting the word out there. Um, but Matt, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Jessica Jones will be back again with episode 109 on Thursday. But uh, Thursday will be the United States premiere of Star Wars The Force Awakens, and we will be recording a little something before. No spoilers, I promise. You, do, do you promise, Pete, for uh, on a on a stack of uh, on a stack of of uh, I don't know what on a stack of Sokovia Accords? Well, I mean, you're asking me to to mix universes there. I I can't do that. I would I would promise on a stack of lightsabers. How about that? Uh, I'll take it. I'll allow it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the spoiler uh, review and, and reaction will happen after uh, we've seen the movie. But I will be seeing it Thursday. Matt may be seeing it Thursday. Um, but we will definitely uh, be putting something down to it on the uh, Fantastic Geek pop culture feed. Yeah, so a reminder that if you uh, if you are listening to this on the Jessica Jones feed and you like what we do, uh, you can find the Pop Culture Podcast feed on iTunes by uh, by searching for Fantastic Geek and uh, also checking FantasticGeek.com. That's where uh, you can see the whole breadth of what we do along with some of these uh, bonuses for Star Wars, some stuff for the holidays, etc. So uh, certainly an exciting time to uh, to make the jump. But Pete, do you know what else is exciting? It's talking to you on Twitter. How could people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-6802. Followers can't be wrong. 
And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a bunch of ways, sharing your Jessica Jones thoughts for these uh, remaining episodes. We are Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with the PH. You can send your thoughts on individual episodes or for the season as a whole to uh, fantasticgeek at gmail at uh, on the dot com and Twitter. And Pete, you mentioned Facebook. How can I find it? I'm not a Facebook guy. Are we facesing? How do I find you? Facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the PH all one word. You'll like us there and you'll like us forever. Well, with that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners until we meet again for episode 109. And I will give you, Pete, the final word. You can go about your business. Move along. Move along. 